0: Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode.
1: We would imagine annual client meetings for financial advisors to be a bit more precarious than usual these days, given all that's happening in markets. And clients may be understandably worried about markets and have fear and other emotions. And those emotions can lead to poor decision making. Also, advisors are tasked with helping their clients understand markets which is not an easy task most days, let alone after a significant decline followed by a brisk rebound, which we've seen lately. So today we're talking about key messages advisors can share with clients at their annual meetings. I'm talking to Ryan Murphy, head of Decision Sciences at Morningstar Investment Management, about how these meetings might be better structured as progress updates. Then we'll touch base with Daniel Needham, our president and global CIO, to hear about ways advisors can help their clients digest and explain today's market environment. Their audio comes from a recent webcast in which they shared slides. We'll make those slides available in the episode notes section, or you can always get them by emailing simple at morningstar.com. Okay, Ryan, we were talking recently about this topic, messages for client meetings, and you said there was one overarching message that you think is most important for advisors to make. Can you talk about that?
2: I think that it's worth backing out and thinking about that question from a very fundamental standpoint and trying to understand why people become investors in the first place. And so I think that if we answer that, we think people are trying to achieve some sort of financial goals, and that's worth keeping in mind. And if you take that that frame, you take that lens, then investors succeed when they reach those financial goals, and advisors are partners in that process, and advisors succeed when their clients succeed. And so all of that can be brought together. I think that, um, as I'll show slides here that show some of these points. So I think that it's worth remembering, too, that although goals can be a natural starting point, being an investor is in some ways unnatural. It requires people to do a couple things. The first, they have to delay gratification, put away money that they could otherwise spend and consume. And also requires that people embrace irreducible uncertainty. And we know from behavioral science that people are not naturally inclined to do either of these things. Patience is not easy, nor is bearing uncertainty. And so having the big why in mind, which comes from people's goals, is useful because that helps people remember what their overall focus is. we think this goal-centric financial planning is reflecting our best thinking. And we think that part of what advisors can do is help remind their clients of their overarching goals and help them stay focused on that over the long term. This clarity I think helps provide the big why people are investing in the first place. And that makes it easier for people to endure the hows, especially during times of volatility. Let me go over a couple points about why we think goals matter. So on this next slide you'll see that goals can provide a very useful benchmark for people to understand if they're on track or not. People I think have a tendency, which is unfortunate to use benchmarks or indices and think of that as the ruler they should gauge themselves against. And that turns out to lead to perhaps some not very good behaviors. I think if people have their goals clearly and squarely in mind, that provides a much better answer to the question, compared to what? How am I doing? Well, compared to what? Am I on track to reach long-term financial goals? Indices aren't necessarily going to provide that for people. We also know that by helping people focus on their goals, this can serve as an antidote to some bad behaviors we know about, for example, return chasing. And this can counter, as a counterbalance to the kinds of decision biases that people occasionally fall prey to. We know that if people have very vivid, personal, and emotionally grounded goals, that can be useful as a motivation to keep them invested in the long-term and help them continue to make the contributions they need to make in order to achieve their long-term aspirations. And we had a recent paper in this, which was published in the Journal of Financial Planning, talking about how to elicit investors' goals, and I'll talk about this in a little bit. But there's this one overarching quote that I've always loved talking about why goals matter. And this comes from Benjamin Graham, saying that the best way to measure a person's investing success is not by whether or not they're beating the market, but whether or not they've put in place a financial plan and have behavioral discipline that is likely to get them where they want to go. I think that's worth keeping in mind, especially as people can start to get uh, some of the bad habits that can be amplified, especially during times of volatility.
1: Thanks, Ryan. You know, Richard Thaler, the behavioral economist and Nobel laureate at University of Chicago, has recommended in the past that people ignore their 401k statements when they arrive in the mail. Is there some useful insight in there for advisors thinking about annual meeting communications?
2: Yeah. So I was thinking about this question and I made a slide. I was trying to think, you know, what is the most basic way you can think about what this issue is? And so this slide, this idea is that let's think about red ink and let's think about black ink right and where people's attention is and where they start to look as they think about how their returns are but we know that people really don't see these things proportional to each other so we know that people see these things through different uh, perceptions and so there's this idea of loss aversion and the next slide really shows this idea of what people see most first and foremost is the red ink it's just part of how our brains are wired so there's this deep insight that comes out of behavioral economics called loss aversion that indicates this asymmetric sensitivity people have to losses relative to gains. Another way to put it is that losses simply hurt more than gains feel good, holding magnitudes constant. And this is worth knowing. This fundamental feature about how we're wired is worth keeping in mind and has direct application when we start to think about reviewing performance. So in the next slide, I show a very typical way in which a person might see how their portfolio is performing. So this is called the balance sheet view which breaks up different parts of a person's portfolio into constituent parts. But what I wanna highlight on the n- next slide is that what do you, the numbers that are typically put at the top of these different representations maybe isn't where we wanna direct people's attention. So there's lots of different examples that exist in the industry that use this, this format. Uh, this happens to be Morningstar's I'm picking on, but you don't have to look far to see this done. Sometimes the first numbers that people see is a benchmark, is an index, and that's exactly not what we want them to pay attention to. And if that's not bad enough, uh, daily changes are highlighted and red ink is used to show losses. In many ways, this is a structure that's designed to tee people off who are already anxious and maybe even induce them to make bad choices about their portfolio. For example, they see that red ink, they're looking at daily changes and might be tempted to go in and fiddle with different components of the asset allocation or what their holdings are. And this just isn't a good thing. So we have a research project where we took a blue sky approach We said, what if we could do just start over from scratch and do something different? And the next slide has this visualization we have thinking about what would be a good way to show people their performance of their portfolio. We call this a goals-based risk approach. And what we're trying to do is highlight what people should be paying attention to that helps them make better long-term decisions. And so the number we wanted to show first and foremost isn't what a benchmark did, but it's the number of, are you on track? And this particular client, they're on track. They're 95% probability of reaching their long-term investing goals. And this, I think, can assuage some of the anxieties people have. Keep doing what you're doing. Things are going to be all right. It also highlights some of the things that people can do that they actually have power over. One of the biggest drivers of investor success is the contribution rate people make. So people can't control what the markets are going to do, but contributions can certainly increase probability of success. And highlighting that, I think, helps people have a little bit more feeling of control. One other thing we're trying to do in this representation, though, is highlight the long time frame that people have as investors. So many investors have a very long time horizon. Our views are of long-term investing, and it's worth emphasizing this. So rather than show what happened in the last day or the last week, let's show what the entire investing life cycle is going to look like for this particular client. So this person has 28 years to go. Let's keep that in mind for them. I think once you use that x-axis that represents the entire life cycle of an investor, the ups and downs in the marketplace are put into a little bit more perception. I mean, you can start to see that these ups and downs relative to the overall goal are actually not that big. I think that kind of view is useful to help people tamp down the natural anxieties they feel. So you look here and you see these jitters up and down. This is the sort of thing talking heads on TV are screaming about. But when you see it in this context, from this perspective, it turns out that's actually not where they should be focusing their attention. So rather than try and teach people to be perfectly rational, we don't have a wand that can do this. We try and think of ways in which we can shift their attention to pay attention to things that they actually can have some control over and will help them make better long-term decisions. Part of that is keeping their goals front and center. One other thing I'd want to highlight is the, the use of information technology. And I think it's amazing. And it's great. And there's lots of very cool stuff out there but I think that there's potentially bad interactions that can happen. For example, I, I have an Apple watch, I'm pretty excited about my digital watch, but there's an opportunity there for me to check my portfolio in real time. It can even nudge me you know, from time to time if there's a movement in the portfolio. And just knowing in the back of my head that I could look at my portfolio, I think keeps that closer to top of mind. So I deleted that particular app because that's actually not good long-term financial behavior. We know that people who check their portfolios more often are more likely to make themselves miserable, again, with this notion of loss aversion, but also more tempted to fiddle with the asset allocation, and that undermines long-term performance. So again, trying to change people's perspective and using a technology like here, this goals-based risk framework, putting investing into a much longer time frame, we think that can help people make better long-term decisions.
1: Ryan, I know some retirees who you know, suddenly have a lot of time on their hands and they have this big pot of money that they're already investing. And, you know, they find a new interest in investing. So they start paying a lot more attention to the markets, watch a lot of cable news to find trades. I don't know if any of them has an Apple Watch, but generally what's wrong with paying a lot of attention to markets?
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm, who am I to judge what a person watches TV? But it strikes me as that's not probably the wisest behavior from an investing standpoint. And I think that looking at markets as a, term, as a form of entertainment is probably not going to help them make good choices. I think that probably the right view is to think about markets as being a long-term tool that can help people get towards where they want to go, right? And so I think that investing, if it's, if it's done well, is probably should be dull. It's not supposed to be exciting. There's a quote from an economist who says, if you want to have, uh, have more excitement in your investing, take money to Las Vegas. Otherwise, it should be boring. But I think that there's a prudent advice in here, which is this idea that goes back to a quote I've always liked from Epicetus saying, just keep in mind, the more we value the things outside our control, the less control we have. And this idea that by watching what happens in the marketplace, especially on a very narrow time scope, day-to-day changes, changes what people should be paying attention to. And I think that that is something that plays into some people's psychology, but I don't think that helps people make good long-term decisions.
1: Thanks, Ryan. And I know that you've talked a lot in the past about the importance of having financial goals, though some people struggle to stick to a budget or even come up with financial goals. You've published some research recently that shows many people don't even know what their goals are. So I guess this is a two-part question. Do you have any advice for advisors to help get clients centered on their goals? And how can they make those goals more near and dear to their hearts? Yeah.
2: So we had this research process, and I'll show you some of that the, the process that comes out of that. One of the surprises was that people can be strangers to themselves. And just by asking them the question, what are your overarching long-term financial goals, they may not know the answer to that. People still give an answer, but it may not be all that reliable. So we did research recently where we have a three-part process, and I'll show you that here on the slide here, which goes over and the first part of the process is we ask people, <clears throat> what is your overarching long-term financial goals? Just off the top of your head, just kind of brainstorming, and people write down things here. And then we say, okay, that's good. Takes a couple minutes, set that aside. Now let's go on to the second part of this. And I'm going to show you a checklist. And this comes from the literature, both academic and industry literature, of the kinds of goals that people might have as investors. I want you to look through this list and check off the things on here that you really like, that really resonate with you. And if there's anything that you don't really, you're indifferent to, just leave it alone. And if there's anything here that doesn't appeal to you at all, scratch it off. So notice what we're having people do is essentially rank order, at least bucket these different goals that they could have. Stuff they really like, stuff kind of in the middle, and stuff they don't care for, right? And then we go on to the third step. We say, okay, now that you've been through this process, let's start to write down again, what are your overarching long-term financial goals? Surprisingly, we find that about a quarter of the time, what people write down in the first place on that first step is different than what they write down in the first place in the third step. So we've helped them discover and and have a better understanding of their own goals. When we look across the data, we find that about 75% of people are changing at least one of their top three. So I think we might have the inclination, advisors might have the inclination to believe that their clients know what their overarching goals are. I mean, they should, right? But as it turns out, people often just don't have this in mind. Part of it is because of where people are thinking. People are often tied up in, you know, what am I having for lunch? Where's my cell phone? They're not thinking in 30-year timeframes. And using a process like this can give people more time and space to better understand what really is motivating them. Uh, This is available. There'll be a link we'll show at the end of this talk for advisors. You're welcome to download this process. It's gone through a FINRA review and hopefully you can find this available or useful in your own practices. And please feel free to give us feedback along this as well. I think this is one of the things we're excited to see more people use. One of the questions we occasionally get around this is, can you imagine using this with a couple? And that's something we have not researched yet, but we've, I've heard some positive feedback um, from field testing on this. And some advisors are using this with a couple where the couple goes off and they each do this process separately and then brings back the results from there. Sometimes advisors say, well, I'm not so sure I want to do this. It sounds like I might be doing marital counseling. My counterpoint is you're going to be doing marital counseling anyway. At least this gives you a chance to document what you're going to be talking about. I think this can be really useful just in helping people better understand, better discover, and better articulate their why of investing and bring that to the forefront of their mind. One other really cool thing we find is that the kinds of things people write down after going through this process have a more uh, emotional grounding than the stuff they write down off the top of their heads. So for example, sometimes people write down things like incidentals as one of their goals for investing, which really doesn't tell me much. But later on, you start to see people write down things like, I don't want to be a burden on my children as I age. And I think that's something that a financial advisor could use as a really useful insight as a motivation for why their clients are investing in the first place. And having that deeper, emotionally grounded why is useful, I think, especially as there's more market uncertainty.
1: Thanks, Ryan. And if anyone wants to dig into that research more, you can find it on the Journal of Financial Planning's website at financialplanningassociation.org learn journal. Ryan, next I'd like to talk about biases. You know, we all as humans struggle when we make decisions because of cognitive biases, which are often driven by and amplified by emotions. In last week's episode of Simple But Not Easy, we heard from Sarah Newcomb from Morningstar, Inc., about how people have understandably felt things like fear and even grief during this period of market volatility. So for advisors preparing for annual meetings with clients, what are some of those biases to look out for that may have been amplified by market volatility?
2: Sure. So if you go check out the, web, or the Wikipedia page on biases, it lists over 200 or so. Um, I don't think all of them are equally important, but there are a couple that stand out, I think, that are worth paying attention to as investors. So one I would mention would be the confirmation bias. And this is the tendency people have naturally to look for information that already confirms what they have in mind. And some digital platforms like searching on Google make this easier. People might come to a foregone conclusion and then start to look for evidence to support a position they already have. And that can lead to some bad behavior. And one flag is that if a person, a client comes to an advisor and is saying, here, I found all these articles that say I should do this. That's one of the valuable things an advisor can do is help them start to think about the, the other side, the questions that they haven't been searching for information about. And it's worth reminding people that in the market for any trade, there's two sides. And it's worth thinking that the other side of the trade is every bit as smart and every bit as motivated to make money as you are. And so I think that can give people a little bit of pause and fight this natural inclination people have about the confirmation bias. We know the recency bias. So this is one that people's, it's a quirk of memory. It's just much easier to remember things that have happened much more recently. But people can over extrapolate from this. And so in the middle of a great market, when the market's been doing splendidly, it's hard to remember times in which the markets may not have been doing so well. And I think that one thing that advisors can do is provide more perspective. And I think that that helps counter the recency bias. Uh, And just by having a little bit more um, memory that can be brought to bear on what markets are like, not only in the short term or what they've been like recently, but how markets can act over long time cycles. One bias we know about is the herding bias. And this comes from a useful heuristic we all use all the time. So, for example, if you're trying to decide whether or not to go to a restaurant looking to see if lots of people are there and enjoying it, this is useful. However, in in financial markets, this sort of thing can lead to feedback and maybe lead to prices getting very far divorced from their fundamentals. So it's worth being mindful of this. And just because other people are doing it, that by itself isn't a sufficient reason. Advisors, of course, hear clients see this from time to time. Everyone's doing this. But I think it's worth reminding them that there are sometimes principles at play in investing, and there's a big difference between speculation and long-term investing. And here's what we're trying to accomplish. And I think that regrounding the conversation that way uh, is useful rather than just trying to keep up with what they've heard other people are doing. All three of those can lead into something called overconfidence, where people, if they feel too much confidence in making moves, can induce them to make lots of bad decisions. And we know that people who are overconfident tend to trade more, and that churn can cost them and undermine long-term performance. And lastly, loss aversion is one of the big ones, and I've talked about that before with this idea of red ink, black ink. People just see the red ink much more loudly in their minds, and it's worth remembering that. And there's no simple way to try and teach people not to be loss averse, but one of the most effective things we've found is that we can shift people's attention to pay attention to longer-term results, and that can tamp down some of the effects of loss aversion. So by shifting intention, I can make people actually act less loss averse, and that turns out to be really useful in helping them achieve their long-term financial goals.
1: Great. Thanks, Ryan. Let's shift gears to think about some of the investing messages that advisors might want to consider sharing with clients. Daniel, uh, markets have had a wild ride so far in 2020. Uh, Clients may have read some headlines. They may be worried about their savings and how it's invested. What might advisors tell clients about markets today that could give them some comfort?
3: Sure, Brett. Um, so I think I'll be touching on a few of the points that, that Ryan made uh, around um, you know, reframing uh, the context. But um, you know, it's, first, it's, it's natural for clients to be worried and anxious in this environment. And one of the challenges is really helping people shift their attention from the short-term market results and the media headlines. But it's important to acknowledge that people have a tendency to do the opposite. And we know from behavioural science that people tend to focus their attention more narrowly during periods of sort of heightened stress. Um, You know, this quarter, the last quarter that's gone has been a bit different to the prior quarter on on a number of fronts, but um, but they're... You know, the, the, the fears have shifted from, you know, substantial market falls to maybe fears of a second economic contraction and market collapse. And, and even for some, a fear of missing out on the rally. Have I, should I get invested? and Whatever the driver, often the outcome is similar. You know, wanting to do something, uh, the fear of losing money and the fear of missing out on returns. And so, you know, advisors often get the client's attention just a few times a year, while the media and friends and family get it most of the, most of the rest of the time. And so this means simply reinforcing messages can be like a rejuvenation or a booster shot for clients to help them reframe the current environment. And so you know, this means reframing markets, uh, portfolios, and also their plan in a longer-term context we think can be, can be impactful for the client. And so I think three sort of ways that you could do this or three types of messages, you know, firstly is sort of bringing in the context of long-term capital market returns. So maybe if we can um, share the uh, first slide there. Um, so this, you know, this is one that we often take for granted because we're in the markets and we probably, we live and breathe it and we've seen it so many times. But, um, you know, often clients are operating with, you know, incomplete information, often in, uh, of a short-term nature, and it's often been cherry-picked as well. So whilst this is an oldie, we think it's a goodie and, um, you know, being able to highlight long-term results, which include periods of war, stagflation, depression, oil shocks can help reinforce the sort of timeless wisdom that that this too shall pass. And it's one of those basic things, but that can be useful in reframing the short-term and bringing in that longer-term context. And really what investing is about is participating in those long-term gains. Um, and if clients aren't investing in the markets, then they're not going to be able to participate in those. But most clients actually invest via uh, diversified portfolios. And so on the back of this, a useful message to reinforce is that the you know the, the the benefits of a diversified portfolio? And so, on this next chart, um, what you can see this is one that uh, again you would have seen a lot. It's the uh, the quilt chart where it shows each year which uh, which investment underlying investment has performed the the best. And everybody's seen this. It you know each year it's rarely the same uh, stock market or the, the same investment each year that's at the top. Uh, but that line that goes through the middle is effectively where the uh, the 60-40 diversified portfolio would sit. And so, you know, it's kind of a very we're staying on the fairway. So it's, it's useful to sort of reinforce the idea that you can participate in the markets, but it's very difficult to determine which investment's going to be at the top. And so, therefore, holding a diversified portfolio means you don't have to worry about that. You can participate in the returns, but you can also get the benefit of um, a, a, a t- sort of reducing the downside risk that, that happens. And often you may get a question where, on the back of that around, you know, why, um, why, when U.S. equities have done really well, why are we owning anything else? And and which, obviously, when you've gone through a period where U.S. stocks, especially large cap growth stocks, have done the best, that can be a difficult question. But sometimes this simple chart highlights just how hard it is to predict what's going to be at the top. And... And to be 100% in US stocks is effectively a decision to just be in one of those, uh, one of those uh, asset classes. And historically, that's not been the best approach. It's been better to diversify uh, the portfolio over the long term. On the back of that, in the market environment, you'll also potentially get questions around um, uh, concerns about uh, losses, you know, uh, the portfolio being down. Um, another uh, valuable uh, image, we think, is the next chart, which shows you know, the performance of a 60-40 portfolio after different market events. And, you know, what you can see here is um, you've got 87, um, you've got uh, the 2000 dot-com crash, you've got the 2008 banking and credit crisis, and it shows that whilst there were uh, uh, some negative returns in the short term, after these events, once you extend that horizon out one, three, five years, generally markets uh, recover and do quite well. And so um, it's, it's useful, those three points, to, to reinforce uh, around the diversified portfolio. So we participate in markets with diversified portfolios. It allows you to capture the long term returns. You don't have to pick which asset class is going to do the best. And when you do have these temporary setbacks, they're generally followed by recoveries where uh, the, uh, the, sh- the short term losses are more than made up for by long term gains. And so we think there are some important messages to set. And then the third. The third point relates more to um, reframing the portfolio value changes and short-term returns. So, often clients will see their portfolio statement and they say, well, my portfolio was down, I had 100,000, now it's at 95,000, or you know, I saw my statement and last month the, uh, the portfolio was down 5%. Um, this can be obviously very visceral for the person that's opening the statement, but we think it's important to try to bring the client's back to the plan, back to the goals, and so uh, the chart that, that Ryan showed, which, which really shifted the focus from the squiggly line to the percentage, the probability of achieving the goal, so focusing on goals, we think that's a, a useful way of shifting from the short-term to the, the purpose of the plan and, and towards a longer-term frame. Now, you might not have um, that tool to be able to do that calculation, and, and you don't necessarily need that tool to do it. Uh, often, just bringing it back to well, what were the two or three things that that the client wanted to achieve? Maybe it's um, it's paying off the house. Maybe it's going on a vacation. Um, maybe it's it's paying for college, or it's actually being able to fund a certain level of retirement. Um, and and just focusing in almost in checking those off. Well, actually, markets are down, but we're still on track for this goal, this goal, and this goal. And maybe maybe not for all goals. And then there's a course correction. But again, it can reframe it away from the short-term market returns, which, uh, as Ryan pointed out, can be a really useful way of of combating uh, things like loss aversion, uh, where where they can really dominate uh, people's thinking. So, so for us, it's really you know recap long-term market returns. Um, we often take for granted uh, that, that those sort of you know that, that that data that we've seen so many times. It can be really useful to reinforce that. Diversified portfolios really help. You know, stay on the fairway and deliver a smoother ride whilst participating markets, and and it can be really valuable to 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 reframe things back to the plan and away from uh, the market portfolio and and, and indexes and short term results.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Uh, let's talk about the major gains many stock markets made in the second quarter. Now, um, do you think markets have moved past any fears about COVID nineteen resurging?
3: Um look it's it's always difficult to know uh, uh what markets are are thinking and uh, and interpreting because it's a collection of lots of market participants um, you know we would say the the recovery in markets has been material um, and when you're looking at, at a sort of a headline, you would say well you know some some there's a more positive outlook in markets than than was occurring at the end of um, at the end of March I think that's 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 clear to us but but when you look below the surface it's been quite uneven so the spread of returns suggests that while the aggregate risk aversion uh, that investors are feeling uh, may have declined and, and greater optimism may be reflected in the market in aggregate, you know, the market appears to us to be pr- pricing in a continued performance of the pandemic winners. So work-from-home companies... Uh, internet-related businesses, strong balance sheets, globally diversified businesses and defensive businesses that have more stable like consumer staples, those kind of businesses that you know um, package goods companies, um, they, they can are continuing to win uh, and those that have been more exposed to um, you know discretionary expenditures, so leisure, travel, uh, things like that, um, you know they, they've continued to lag. So whilst there's been a recovery across the board uh, a lot of the market performance and the recovery back towards the highs has been driven by a relatively narrow part of the market. And so when we interpret that, we would say that, well, actually, there's still a pretty wide spread between those parts of the, the stock market that are exposed, more exposed to the COVID-19 impacts. And our view is that the market's still pricing in a very negative, uh, a, a fairly negative path of the cash flows for those businesses. So um, there's still fears baked into the market, but but other parts of the market are more than offsetting that at the moment.
1: Daniel, when returns have been disappointing, people often want to try something new. What unintended consequences might this have?
3: Trying new things is often can be a good thing. It can be exciting. And, um, and generally, uh, uh, you know, people learn a lot by trying new things in capital markets, uh, in investing, often trying new things, uh, in challenging environments, um, rarely turns out well. And so, um, you know, the unintended consequences are that um, people compound the problem. So their portfolio is down or they've been, they've been struggling. And often the two most common responses that people have is to chase returns. So to shift into the parts of the market that have done really well. And generally people don't move quickly. So they tend to, to, to move in a slower basis. And so they do what's called medium-term uh, return, medium-term trend following. And all of the empirical data suggests that that's the worst kind of t- trend following where there is evidence that trend following works it's at relatively short time intervals definitely less than 12 months but what happens is we see a lot of trend following medium term trend following over sort of 24 to 36 months and, and people rarely do well the other one is to try to time the markets effectively moving in and out of cash uh you know moving into the stock market moving out um again look that's it's a very human urge to to want to time the markets and to want to make money and. Um, but it rarely works out well, even for professional investors. And so um, I would say that in markets, the new is normally just repackaged bad behaviour <laughs> that, uh, that is kind of drawing on um, those natural urges that people have to, 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 to make money over the short term. You know, sticking to a strategy, you know, that feels like it isn't doing well is, is difficult. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but it actually often turns out to be the best approach. Um, and, and in general, doing nothing, is often uh, better than almost all other activities for investors. So uh, the unintended consequences, you know, in our view, are are the same, you know, worse outcomes uh, for for clients.
1: Daniel, after a period of volatility like we've just seen, some clients may be hesitant to invest a large sum of money. How might advisors get clients comfortable with investing today when uncertainty seems higher than usual?
3: Um, So I think, you know, there's a, I think investing in general, just saving obviously that's something that that everybody should do at all times and um, and and whether you save has a much bigger effect generally than, than than what you invest your savings in. so I think saving through uncertainty is critical the The question that you pose is a, is a one that we get a bit and it's actually a more challenging one, which is I've got a large sum of money, maybe the a client has sold a business or there's been an inheritance, uh, or you know they've left the company, and they've um, you know they're reducing that the, 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 their ownership of that that single stock, and so they want to move the money somewhere else, and it's generally a pretty substantial sum. And so you know it's an important question that I know a lot of advisors that I've spoken to deal with, um, and and obviously the response isn't one size fits all. It, it often de- de- depends, but but traditional finances answered this question many times over and over again. And the answer is invest the portfolio, invest in a portfolio that maximises the individual's expected utility and do it right away with no delays. That's what they've said over and over again. <laughs> I think there must be you know, dozens of papers in uh, finance journals written on this. Now, unfortunately, uh, for theory, real people feel the pain of losses more than they, uh, they enjoy, the, uh, enjoy gains or feel the joy of gains. So that's loss aversion, which Ryan covered. And they also experience both regret and anticipated regret. And this combination, you know, can lead to painful emotions and that can lead to poor investment decisions. So moving somebody into their utility maximising portfolio may be the right thing to do uh, from a traditional finance perspective. But if they don't stick to it and they sell out, you know, three months later, then that can be a much worse outcome. So there can be, you know, three useful techniques that can help deal with this. And they're kind of really versions of the same thing. But the first, and these aren't going to be new new to to uh, the advisors that are watching this, but dollar cost averaging is is a very useful technique. So, pick a rate that can get the person invested while spreading it out over time. And so, this can be purely mechanical based off time, like a quarter of the portfolio every month for four months, or you can tie it to market levels. Um, uh, but but the most important thing is that that it's it's systematic and there's a commitment, and this can be simple but quite effective. The second approach or the second technique that can help. It's kind of a combination of dollar cost averaging and bucketing. But, but effectively, what you're dealing with, with the client is, is they're concerned about that anticipated regret. And so you could say, okay, well, let's determine an amount of money the client knows that they can meet all their spending for some time period. And this may actually already be a part of the plan, so maybe you'll double that amount. But you'll work out some amount that's going to allow the client to move forward with the plan. But importantly, it's the least amount that allows them to, to sleep at night. Invest the rest in the appropriate strategy, and then over time use a similar dollar cost averaging. So once the client gets comfortable, you can transition the bucket towards the, the 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 bucket of cash, the extra bucket of cash, and you can do that on a similar systematic approach, which can get the client invested. This is also simple, but but it allows you to sort of separate the short the, that anticipated regret and the fear of losing money um, into one sort of strategy. The third again is uh, is is related. And this is the concept of save more tomorrow. And so, you know, advisors want to help their clients make decisions and plans today, but those plans can be carried out over future months. So this can help, the, you know, that avoid the feeling of that anticipated regret about what might happen tomorrow, which nobody knows. So you actually put a plan together uh, today, but you're not going to implement it for six months' time or some time in the future. And it just allows you to separate that the strong emotional feelings that you have today about not knowing tomorrow into a plan, you know, that can be, that can be actioned um, and because and those strong feelings that clients have can really induce sort of decision paralysis and then they just don't make a decision. And when they do, they maybe they make an emotional decision and it's in the wrong direction. So, um, I mean, one point to note, uh, none of these options will be viewed as op- optimal from a sort of a traditional finance perspective, but that's okay. You know, advisors are rarely trying to make their clients perfectly rational but help them make better choices given the constraints they're operating under. And we think techniques like this can nudge people to make better decisions and, in doing so, improve their outcomes. And, you know, they build on behavioural science results that shed light on how people think about risk and money. And these insights can help your clients get invested and they can minimise, they won't remove the pain of investing and seeing losses and and not investing and seeing missed gains. So both regret and anticipated regret that can lead to selling low or buying high, which is the opposite of, of sensible uh, investing. And so we think these techniques can be useful. I think trying different things to see what, work is, what, what, what works is important um, because we're dealing with people, not the, uh, the sort of rational utility maximizers of the textbooks that were pounded into our heads at university.
1: Great. Thank you, Daniel and Ryan, for joining me today. And thank you for listening. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.